<laughs> not, not really. <laughs> we are still in Romans 12, verse 1. But uh, don't, don't you sometimes wish that, that the preacher, not ours, uh, would kind of rip some pages out of his sermon and, and throw them into the congregation? Uh, no such luck today. I have a backup. So. Anyway, we are still preaching on Romans 12, 1 for the third Sunday in a row. And next week, uh, we'll be covering, you guessed it, Romans 12.1. In fact, we'll be spending ten weeks on the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. This has got to be important. And I guess we better read these first two verses of Romans uh, 12. Uh, and it goes like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Why did Dave Silvermale map out ten weeks of sermons to cover these two verses? And why does James Montgomery Boyce devote 10 chapters and 80 pages of his commentary on Romans to Romans 12, 1 through 2? Why is R.C. Sproul's daily radio program named Renewing Your Mind, which is taken from these verses? I imagine that we should certainly pay attention to such an emphasis by three theological heavyweights like Sproul, Boyce, and Silvernail. Why is Romans 12, 1 through 2 such a significant passage? The first reason is that it is the pivotal passage in the book of Romans where Paul transitions from the deep theological teaching of the first 11 chapters to the implications, to the consequences, to the practical applications of this teaching. It's like reaching the peak of a mountain ridge after a long, hard climb. We look back down the mountain at Paul's explanation of why things are the way they are, and we look forward over the panorama ahead to see the way we should go. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is a vantage point that connects theology and its practical applications. But the second more important reason for examining these verses so closely is that they are a key that unlocks the secret for transforming theory into action. Let's see how good a detective you are. Can you identify the key that enables us to put our faith into action? I'll give you two scriptural clues, which I'll project up on the screen. Hopefully. Um, The first is a passage... Uh, from uh, as a passage we, we've been talking about, and the second is from our favorite biblical action figure, the Apostle Paul. Uh, let me read them to you. First from Paul. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, a living, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then from Peter, therefore, 
Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Do you see the common denominator for Christian action in these passages? Paul and Peter both look back at the teachings about grace. That's the therefore part. But what's the key uh, to action? The key is our mind. Our minds must be changed by God. When our minds are renewed by comprehension of God's love, we are not merely nudged, we are transformed. When our minds are prepared for action by God's word, we break loose from the evil ruts of this world. Instead of following the crowd, we long to live the holy life that the Lord Jesus calls us to. So the key to godly living is a mind that functions with a gospel operating system. It's a mind that has been washed with the word of God. It's a mind that is no longer ignorant, but one that understands reality, the reality of God's glory and purpose and grace. So for 10 weeks, we focus, uh, we, our focus is on thinking, godly thinking. And as usual, James Boyce aptly summarizes the importance of these verses uh, in the, uh, on the, and the importance of thinking uh, as he says, Paul knew that if we are to act as Christians, we must first learn to think as Christians, since how we think will determine what we do. In our day, people do not think deeply and seldom think about the truths of Christianity. Unbelievers move through life in a spiritual daze, unaware that they have precious but impoverished and dying souls. Believers are often in a daze, too. There is very little measurable difference in thought and action between believers and their unbelieving counterparts. One observer of the contemporary scene says that God lies weightlessly upon them and that Christian doctrines seem to have no consequences. My prayer today is that God will not lie weightlessly upon us, but that we will be changed by the awesome, powerful, truly true word of God himself. So let's continue our studies of Romans 12:1 with relish. Today we're going to focus on just five words from verse 1 that I trust will help us turn doctrine into action. <clears throat> These words are about motivation and mercy. They are in view of God's mercy. These words say that understanding God's mercy motivates godly action. Last week, Dave Crenshaw urged us passionately to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Why would I do such a wacky thing? The answer, in view of God's mercy. God's mercy motivates me. Paul knew from personal experience that a view of God's mercy would motivate so what is Paul saying with the words in view of? The original Greek for this phrase is dia, which means through or by means of. Thus, Paul is urging us through or by means of God's mercy. The NIV translation of this phrase in view of calls to mind a looking back on all we know about God's mercy. I like to think of uh, this, ver uh, this phrase as a rearview mirror. 
With this rearview mirror, we look back at the overwhelming record of God's mercy described not only in the first chapters or first 11 chapters of Romans, that's what has come up to this point, but in the entirety of the Bible. This is truly a motivational rearview mirror. Do you remember the first Jurassic Park movie? One of the highlights for me was the Tyrannosaurus Jeep chase. Here comes the galloping, toothy reptile in hot pursuit of the tiny, terrified heroes in an open jeep. Sam Neill, doing his best to keep the careening vehicle uh, on the road, has just a moment to glance in his rearview mirror, which is filled with greedy eyes and nostrils and teeth. The comic relief comes when the audience sees the standard warning stenciled on the convex mirror. Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Now, that's motivation. But the Apostle Paul's rearview mirror is not one that motivates by fear, nor is the motivation self-interest. Remember that Paul is talking to brothers, fellow Christians who have been saved by grace and trust in Christ's righteousness, not their own. They need not be motivated to try to save themselves. Neither is the mirror filled with guilt. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a freeing truth. As believers, we have a real cure for our guilt. No, Paul is relying upon a different kind of motivation here. The view in Paul's rearview mirror is not terrible monsters, but tender mercies. As we might expect from a gracious and loving God, he works all things together so that we are motivated to serve him not out of fear or greedy self-interest or guilt, but rather out of gratitude for who he is and what he has done. Brian Chapel, who has a long time been president of Covenant Theological Seminary, which is our denomination's training ground for pastors, sums it up this way. Mercy stimulates the gratitude that is the only enduring motivation for effective Christian service. Let me illustrate. Have you heard about the Pharaoh's great houseboat adventure? In March, we rented a houseboat in Florida in honor of Deb's 25th birthday, or, or some multiple of that. No. <laughs> When the houseboat's generator failed, before we even took it out, Dave, the owner of the houseboat, sent us to Phil, who rented us a small runabout so we could get out on the water. The difference between these two men was great. When I first laid eyes on Dave, my body tensed. My fa or his face was tight and trim and tan. Uh, he had a meager mustache and scowl lines on his forehead. He carried a clipboard everywhere he went. Uh, his list of houseboat, houseboat do's and don'ts was a mile long. No black shoes on the deck, no suitcases on the cushions. Clean this. Don't flush that. Watch out for this. Don't flip that switch. And sign this contract with very, very small print and a very, very large security deposit. Scratch the propeller and you bought it. And by the way, the replacement cost of the boat was $139,990 and some odd cents, uh, just so we knew in case we wrecked it. We grudgingly took care of the houseboat. On the other hand, Phil greeted us with a warm smile. Uh, he uh, had a Santa Claus beard and a, and a physique to match, 
And uh, a relaxed, uh, with a relaxed wave of the hand, he said, that's your boat. He asked us about our family and told us about his sick cat. He gave us some safety instructions because he didn't want us to hurt ourselves. But he said not to worry if anything happened to his boat. Several times during that week, I called him with boneheaded questions, which he answered with grace and patience. The day I was due to return Phil's boat, I killed the battery by leaving the bilge pump on. I called Phil and told him I'd have to return the boat a day late and <clears throat> then went down to the auto parts store and bought a, a replacement battery. I returned the boat to Phil the next day, expecting that by now he'd be fed up with his flaky tourist. Instead, he apologized for the trouble I had had with the boat. And when he found out that, that I had replaced the battery, instead of charging me for an extra day, <clears throat> he reached into his pocket and pulled out $62 in cash to pay me for the battery that I had ruined. Needless to say, I would do anything for Phil. And I've been recommending Aquanuts in Fort Myers, Florida to anyone I meet. <clears throat> By the way, in the Poetic Justice Department, the lawyer that rented the houseboat next to ours that also belonged to Dave um, is suing Dave for misrepresentation. <laughs> <clears throat> this story about Dave and Phil is a model for how, on the one hand, it is burdensome living under the requirements of the law, but on the other hand, delightful even to present our bodies as living sacrifices out of gratitude to a loving, gracious, and merciful God. In view of God's mercy, the immoral woman wet Jesus' feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. In view of God's mercy, Stephen prayed for those who stoned him, crying out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And mercifully, God answered Stephen's prayer and forgave Paul for his part in Stephen's death. So that in view of God's mercy, Paul and Silas could sing hymns at midnight after being severely flogged and thrown into prison. And then they willingly extended God's mercy to their own jailer. Lastly, tradition says, in view of God's mercy, every disciple except John went to his death for faith in Jesus. That's true motivation. I hope we have a sense of the kind of motivation Paul conveys with the words in view of. Let's keep our motivational rearview mirrors focused on God's mercy. That brings us to the second part of our subject today, mercy. What is mercy? If you're like me, you have a kind of a sense or a vague notion of what mercy is all about. But you could use a little focusing uh, on the meaning of mercy. A good start might, to be, uh, might be to pull out the old American Heritage Dictionary where we'd find the following definition. One, compassionate treatment, especially of those under one's power, clemency. Two, a disposition to be kind and forgiving. Three, something for which to be thankful, a blessing. Four, alleviation of distress relief. Another thing that's even more helpful if you have time is to pull out your Bible and look at how the Lord describes mercy. With the help of Bible software, in a matter of seconds, you can discover all 151 specific references to mercy in the NIV translation of the Bible. The number alone gives a sense of the importance of mercy in the scriptures. 
I had a great time examining each of these passages to come up with my own understanding of what biblical mercy is. The biblical concept reflects all of the dictionary definitions in a single rich concept of mercy. <clears throat> Using this approach, mercy might be summarized as overwhelmingly compassionate treatment by one who is powerful, kind, caring, and forgiving toward one who is helpless and in deep distress, resulting in rescue and profound gratitude. I think that the difference I see between the dictionary definition of the biblical sense of mercy and the biblical sense of mercy is the personal warmth of the merciful one and the profound depth and richness of the mercy itself. It seems that God always adds abundant life to anything in this world, even the definition of a word. If we look at the original language for the word mercy, we see that it's actually a plural word, oiktirmon, or mercies. That is why some translations use the phrase tender mercies instead, which is a great rendering and captures some of the richness and majesty of God's awesome mercy. The biblical record of God's mercy is overwhelming. Chapter after chapter, page after page, book after book, the story of man's corruption and God's mercy unfolds. In order to broaden our understanding of biblical mercy, let's look at just a few instances of this record. Let's first look at the Lord's merciful relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. In the first chapter of Exodus, which uh, I'll give a plug for the Sunday school class. Dave Crenshaw is doing a great job for the adult Sunday school class on Exodus. Please come to that class. If you have any opportunity to be here, please be there for that class. Anyway, um, we, we covered last week uh, the plight of, of Israel in Egypt. And uh, this is what it says in Exodus 1. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. What a miserable and hopeless plight. God's response to the travail of his people drips with mercy and grace. Here's what he says. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is so gracious. But noteworthy is Israel's response after miraculous signs and wonders, release from the clutches of Pharaoh, the astounding last minute rescue at the edge of the Red Sea, and the manna and quail from heaven to feed them. Does Israel thank God? No. They grumble, complain, and turn at the first opportunity from their gracious and merciful God to worship a chunk of gold fashioned with their own hands. Sadly, this behavior was by no means unique for Israel. If you want a summary of Israel's rebellious history, Read Nehemiah 9, which is their confession prompted by Ezra's reading of the book of the law to the people. 
In verses 29 through 31, he summarizes the whole of Old Testament history in a paragraph. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. I read these passages to give a uh, to, because they give a context for God's mercy. He is not merciful because these are winsome, deserving, righteous people. God is merciful because of his kind and compassionate nature. In spite of these, as my kids would delicately call them, jerks. Glad we're not like them, right? <laughs> don't know about you. But I can't begin to count the times I've grumbled about a wife who too often prompts me to do the right thing or complained or complained about debts that I've racked up or worshipped my vacation in Maine or the chunk of bricks that I call my home. I'm no different from Israel in the desert over 3000 years ago. By nature, I am a sinner. In fact, not to be in your face. But I have it on good authority, so are you. (laughs) There's no escape clause in Romans 3.23 when it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin by nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. God is merciful to sinful sinful Israel, and he is merciful to sinful Pharaoh. That's F-A-R-O-E, not P-H-A-R-A-O-H. So God is glorified not only in his mercy, but in the context, the very context of his mercy. He is merciful to the undeserving. Well, history lessons are fine, and we can learn much about God's mercy and our nature from Bible history. But Jesus showed us that one of the best ways to communicate truth was through a story. His best known and loved parable illustrates the essence of mercy. Listen as I read from Luke 15, starting at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant land, our distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Wow, what a heart. The boy has been a greedy, selfish, thoughtless fool. What is in the father's heart? Compassion. This young man is a wretched, helpless, pig slop sucker. <clears throat> but who does the father see? His son, who was lost. The son has rejected and abandoned his family. How does the father relate? He runs to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him. The son has squandered. The father delights to clothe him richly. The son starves. The father throws a feast. The son is no longer worthy to be called a son. The father celebrates his return. The son was as good as dead. The father has given him new life. This picture is the mercy of God. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If you're a dad or a mom, you can begin to understand God's mercies. Tender mercies are his nature. That is why we love and joyfully serve him. It is in view of God's mercy. One more illustration from the scriptures. Mercy is the heart of the gospel. We've seen God's mercy in the history of a nation that represents our corruption. We've looked at the merciful heart of a father in a parable that represents the merciful love of God. Now let's see the mercy of the gospel from the vantage point of a man in history whose life epitomizes in view of God's mercy. Saul was a fast tracker. On his way to the top, proud of his bloodlines and the feathers in his cap. In his own words, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. What a guy. He had done it all. He was at the top of his game. He was the envy of Israel. Yet he was dead. And despite his Ph.D. in the law, he was blind to his deadness. However, those who saw reality saw Paul's or Saul's fruit. Luke was one who knew reality. We get this different view of Saul from Luke in Acts chapters 8 and 9. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. What was the fruit of Saul? Death, destruction, violence, hatred. These were the fruit of this religiously driven man. Yet he saw himself as faultless. I have a question for you. Do you think 
Saul had anything to do with his conversion to Christ. Was he searching for God? I'm sure he was searching for Christian men and women to stone or jail them. But searching for God? I don't think so. Was he a seeker? He was a Pharisee, the most zealous, learned, and knowledgeable of all the Jews. He knew the scriptures. He was seeking to know, or was he seeking to know that Jesus, he was blaspheming? I don't think so. Did he have that 1% of virtue, that island of righteousness that enabled him to respond on his own to the gospel message of Stephen? I don't think so. The only island Saul had was the pile of clothes that he guarded while a sea of stones broke Stephen's body. No, no, and no. Saul had absolutely nothing at all to do with his salvation. He was a hateful, blaspheming persecutor on the way to Damascus to hound more Christians. He was supernaturally knocked to the ground, blinded, and assailed by the thundering voice of God himself. How was Saul converted? He was not convinced or wooed or reasoned into the kingdom. It was God's mercy. God's mercy 100%. Mercy at its best. If Saul was the chief of sinners, this was the greatest instance of mercy of all time. And that's what's so special about the gospel. In spite of Saul's sin, God loved him, chose him, and gave him the very faith in Christ that saved him. It was God that transformed Saul, the chief sinner, into Paul, the chief apostle. What is the response of a blind, dead man who has been made alive by God's mercy? Peace, joy, and gratitude. This is how Paul compared his former life with that of the new life in Christ. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you're new to all this, what I've said may sound a bit strange. We are taught by our culture uh, and experience and all the other world religions that salvation or nirvana or the happy hunting ground or whatever you call the goal of life is a matter of our works, what we do. But Jesus, our Savior, said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why did he say that? First, he knew, as we've already talked about, that we are all sinners, as Paul tells us in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a big problem here. God is completely holy, righteous, and loving, and so cannot tolerate sin. Because he is completely just, he must punish sin. Again, Paul reveals in Romans 6.23 that sin is so serious that, as he puts it, the wages of sin is death. But because of his mercy, God has provided a way of salvation for sinful man. He did this by sending Jesus Christ, his only son, into the world. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life that God requires. Jesus then willingly gave up his life, dying by crucifixion, 
and enduring the unimaginable wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sins. Again, as Paul says in Romans 5, 8 and 9, God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? But this gift of salvation is not universal. Jesus' best friend on earth, the Apostle John, tells us how we receive this salvation in the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we put our faith in Jesus and his righteousness rather than our own good works, we not only escape condemnation, but we also receive eternal life. So, where do all those good works that Christians like Ned Flanders is so famous for fit in anyway? Aren't Christians supposed to do good works? Yes, but now we come back to in view of God's mercy. We do our good works because they are in accord with God's loving nature and are pleasing to him. Our good works are not a means to salvation, but rather a grateful response to the mercy that saved us. To sum it all up, turn, uh, we turn to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and, uh, through 10, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We finally come to the part about applying the word of God in our daily life. How do we apply the phrase in view of God's mercy? The application is simple. We merely follow through with the rest of Romans 12.1. As Dave Crenshaw explained so well last week, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Over the next eight weeks, We'll work through uh, our, our six months. We'll work through the last five chapters of Romans and learn exactly what this means in practical terms. But as a way of getting started, let's let's look at just the application concerning mercy itself. How do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices in terms of mercy? Jesus tells us in Luke 636, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Our lives are to be modeled on God's mercy. Do you remember our definition of biblical mercy? Let me repeat it. Overwhelmingly compassionate treatment by one who is powerful, kind, caring, and forgiving toward one who is helpless and in deep distress, resulting in rescue and profound gratitude. Luke says we are to be merciful just as God is. This is a tall order. As the world's greatest Potomac Hills mercy expert for today and only today, I have prepared some practical ways to put mercy into practice for everyone here. And just to make sure that no one is missed, I'd like everyone to stand up. Okay, as I call your group, you may sit down. If you are 12 years, or old, 12 years old or younger, please sit down. I have advice for you in a minute. Johanna, stand up. 
Although this would apply to you. You listen for this one, too. <laughs> um, if you are a teen or college age, you may sit down. You're covered, too. If you're single, I have advice for you. You may sit down. If uh, you are a husband or a wife expecting children or without children, you may sit down. Advice is coming your way, too. <clears throat> if you are a parent, please sit down. And if you're still standing, you're completely unique. We'll pray for you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> On to the practical applications of mercy. Listen for your group. Let's start out with the kids. This is only for the kids 12 and under. And Johanna. <clears throat> Don't you teens, singles, parents, and the rest of you listen to what I'm about to say. As I used to say to Kylie when he was two, don't you dare listen to what I'm going to say. Okay, kids, this is a secret. Remember how I told you someone who is merciful is powerful? You are very powerful. You have the power to make your parents completely miserable. By fighting and squabbling with your brothers and sisters. And if that doesn't work, all you have to do to make your parents miserable is make them tell you to do something two or three or four or five times before you do it. So, kids, be kind and patient with your brothers and sisters and obey your parents the first time and you will be merciful like your father in heaven. Don't forget that the Bible tells us to be kind and compassionate and for children to obey their parents. Okay, everybody may listen again. What about our teens and college age extreme mercy team? Do you realize that you are surrounded by those who are helpless and in deep distress? Almost all of your friends are really insecure just because they're part of your age group. Even the cool kids are insecure. If they are insecure, think how awful it must be for someone who is excluded and cut down. When I was in high school, one of the most intelligent, popular kids in our school, a guy who eventually went to Harvard, started calling one of the more homely girls in our class, Wombat. In a very short time, she no longer had a name. She was just Wombat. No one came to her rescue. No one came to her defense. Can you imagine her helplessness and distress? Every teen and college age here, I challenge you, in view of God's mercy, to befriend and defend wombats in your school. Your simple act of including the outcast in a school setting where coolness is the idol is an act of overwhelming courage, caring, and compassion. Jesus talked to the moral reject at the well, ate with despised tax collectors, and touched the disgusting lepers. As we sit here this morning, I challenge you again to think right now of a wombat in your school or neighborhood. How can you befriend and include this person created in God's image? This summer, I challenge you to love a wombat. Teens and college age, by virtue of your youth and talent and energy, 
I will give you one more challenge. Do you know that 90% of Christians come to Christ by the time they leave your age group? Most of your friends who will ever come to Christ will do so or will, will, will do so while you know them in high school and college. God elects and God opens the hearts so that we may have faith. But he uses Christians and their witness and the scriptures to bring them to faith. The greatest act of human mercy I ever received was when my younger brother shared the gospel with me and God used his witness to rescue me from eternal death and misery and grant me eternal life through Christ. Today, I am eternally grateful to my brother for sharing the gospel with me. I was ripe for conversion at the end of my college years. Jesus talked about the fields being white for harvest. Your classmates and friends are more white for harvest than any other group I addressed this morning. I challenge you to show them mercy by sharing the gospel in love and language they can relate to. All right, now singles. Those of us who are married tend to be constrained by our responsibilities uh, as spouses and parents. And while I realize that some singles are even busier than the ball and chain set, I, I, mean, I mean those who are blissfully married, <coughs> you are nevertheless much more the captain of your own ship. You often have greater flexibility in the ways you can offer your bodies as living sacrifices. How does mercy apply to you? Could it be that God is calling you during your time of singleness to minister to the truly helpless? Does your station in life make you more available to visit those in prison or to rescue the unborn through work at a pregnancy care center like Lifeline or to minister to victims of disaster like Marcy does? If some particular ministry to the helpless has a special drawing for you, is this perhaps God calling you to be involved? <clears throat> so, or if so, I pray that in view of God's mercy, you might become one of his agents of mercy in this form of ministry. All right, husbands and wives. I joked about the ball and chain, but on a more serious note, we really are attached to one another. When Jesus, or Jesus says, when we are married, we become one flesh. This, that is why it's so devastating when we hold grudges against one another. Each of us needs to confess and repent our offenses against our spouse, but we also need to be willing to forgive those offenses. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about a servant who owed his master more than he could repay in many lifetimes of work. His master took pity on him and forgave the debt. But when another servant who owed the first servant just a small amount of money and asked for mercy, the first servant refused. When the master found out about it, he was incensed. Jesus concludes this parable by saying, In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Our gracious and loving Lord takes forgiveness very seriously. 
He has been unimaginably merciful to us. In view of God's mercy, how can we fail to forgive our wives and husbands for their offenses? All right, last but not least, I address parents. There are so many ways we can be merciful to our kids. The first and foremost is to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, helping them develop a healthy understanding of and relationship with our Lord is the greatest act of mercy you can render them. The ideal is spelled out in Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 7 through 9, which says concerning God's commandments, impress them on your children. <clears throat> Talk about them when you, sit, uh, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of